Well, good morning. It's great to see you all this morning, and uh, we have the honor of studying God's Word together again. We continue in Leviticus, and uh, I'm just struck again by the fact that we are studying this uh, wonderful book of the Bible that most Christians find an absolute mystery. We're going to try to demystify together. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for allowing us to open your word, knowing that it, it is alive, sharper than any two-edged sword. Father, we pray that your living word will do its living work in us to your glory. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. As we've seen, Leviticus is this book right in the middle of the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And uh, that's not just for us. What we know is the structure of the Bible, beginning the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the Old Testament. We need to remember that for Israel, these five books are Torah. They are the very essence of the Word of God to them, the covenant text. Now, later we will speak uh, of the law and the prophets, and we know the Old Testament includes also wisdom literature, such as uh, the Psalms, the Proverbs, uh, Song of Solomon. And uh, there are the historical books, but central to the identity of Israel is the Torah. And, and that begins, of course, with Genesis. The very first word is, uh, is what's translated as Genesis, uh, in the beginning. And that tells us about uh, not only God's work of creation and, and about the reality of the fall, it tells us also about uh, God's choosing of a people, but it's basically, first of all, through a person, Abraham. And thus, uh, through Abraham and his descendants, we have the tracing of the development of Israel as a people. But Israel does not yet have, by the time you get to the end of, of Genesis, Exodus, does, uh, Israel does not yet have uh, what, what, just in religious terms, you would call a cultus. It, it, it doesn't have a, a liturgy. It, it doesn't have a fully developed theological system. That will come with the development of the covenant in its fullness, as we will see, that comes only after the exodus from Egypt. And so just getting the, the sequence of Israel's identity in mind, this is after the exodus. So in the sense of Israel's covenant identity, there is never going to be an identity apart from, I am the God who brought you out of captivity to Pharaoh in Egypt. So this is a rescuing God, a rescuing holy God, a rescuing creator, sovereign, absolutely omnipotent God. This is the God who has chosen a people and uh, he has, he's made covenant with his people and to this covenant people, he addresses his law. As we saw last time in a text like Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses will speak to the children of Israel and remind them of what it was like to stand at the, at the mountain there in Exodus chapter 20, when Moses alone went up into the mountain to meet with the Lord, and the Lord handed, handed him the law, gave him the law. You know, has any other people received laws so good? 
And, and now we're at the, the part of the law that has to do with the cultus, that has to do with what we would call the liturgy. What, what does the covenant look like worked out in the relationship between Israel and God? And the most important thing we need to recognize is that that covenant is temporal such that Israel's reminded of it all the time, especially in the structure of the week. So Israel's liturgy, so to speak, Israel's liturgical life is as, as tangible to them as the week. The, the Sabbath law makes the calendar paramount to Israel. Now, the calendar is important to us. It is. But you know, the calendar is not paramount to us in nearly any sense. The, the only analogy we would have even approaching something like the Sabbath would be the institution of the Lord's Day. Uh, because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the apostles were led to move the, the day of Christian worship uh, to the first day of the week or to Sunday. But the Lord's Day is not and has never been an institution like the Sabbath was an institution. And especially for us, because we recognize that we, uh, we are here this morning, and uh, there are far more people not here than there are people here. Uh, we live in a society that is not marked by a common liturgy, because it doesn't have a common faith. But once you, you understand the Sabbath as the sequential liturgy of, of Israel every week, and, and by the way, it was such that that means that the Sabbath is something that has to be prepared for the entire week. So the entire rest of the week for six days, just as even God said to Moses in the commandment, for six days the Lord labored in creation, the seventh day rested. So also, uh, everything was really focused on getting to the Sabbath. But in terms of Israel's worship, The daily system of the sacrifices is what is paramount. This is what, this is what would be so graphic and, and so regular and would be so overwhelming, comprehensive in the demands. This would be the main enterprise of Jerusalem. This, this would be the main enterprise of what would take place in the tabernacle and eventually in the temple. We tend to think of the sacrifices as something Israel did. Israel think of the thought of the sacrifices as something Israel was. This is, this is so much who we are that everywhere you look, at where you find Israel in, 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 this, in this obedience to God, you find blood. Lots of it. Now, as we think about this, we keep in mind... For instance, what we are told later in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, that with, without uh, blood, there's no remission of sins. Now, why? Without blood, there's no remission of sins. Why? Well, we're, we're told, for instance, that there's life in the blood. And so, in one sense, we have to understand that the blood, even our blood, most importantly, Christ's blood, is the essence of life. That's why we talk about a blood atonement. That's why there's so much even graphic attention to the bleeding of Christ on the cross. 
even unto death. This is so tangible that historians of ancient Israel would say that the closer you would get to the temple, and, uh, and remember that the animals that are available for sacrifice for those who are traveling to Jerusalem are also there in the environs, the precincts of the temple. The temple would be smelled long before it would be seen. This is an olfactory experience. It's a visual experience. It's an auditory experience with the animals being sacrificed. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. We're also told, as you well remember, and this is central for Christians, that the blood of the animals was never enough for the forgiveness of sins. By the way, in the book of Hebrews, one of the keys to understanding Hebrews is the repetition of the word impossible or the phrase, for it is impossible. And you see this in chapter 10, verse 4 of Hebrews, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Speaking of the redemption achieved by Christ in chapter 9, verse 11, we read that when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater, more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, that's pointing tabernacle, temple, but this is the heavenly atonement that Christ has accomplished. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls, with the ashes of a heifer, sacrifices for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? I wanted to go to Hebrews because I want us to think backwards for just a little bit. Look at how the atonement accomplished by Christ is described here. The sprinkling of defiled persons with blood. This is if, if this had, had been the picture from the Old Testament, and it was. The blood of goats and bulls with the ashes of a heifer. These are sacrifices for the purification of the flesh. But then notice again, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit notice these words, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And what immediately follows, of course, is the declaration, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So again, we're working backwards, and I think this is essential for Christians. So we're working backwards. So you notice that the sins committed under the first covenant are only covered by the blood of Christ, which is why we'll be told again in just a few verses that it is impossible for the blood of goats and, and calves to take away sin for the remission of sin. So it's really helpful to us uh, to know that. So this is all temporary in the Old Testament. It, it's, it's, it's to hold back for a time. It is, it is not full atonement. It is to, atonement sufficient, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, and we saw this last time. It is atonement sufficient to hold back his wrath 
which again Paul explains in, in, in Romans. But you'll notice the sacrifice of Christ, the atonement of Christ is described as, as Christ who sacrifices himself. He enters the Holy of Holy, not with the blood of an animal, but sheds his own blood. But you'll notice that he has mentioned himself as without blemish as a sacrifice. Well, we look back to Leviticus, and where we're going to be reading today is we look at the sacrificial system. We're going to see what it means for the sacrifice to be without blemish and, and, and why that is important. We're going to go back to the very beginning just for context as we read together. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. Now, just again to remind us, this jumps right into it. There, there isn't a, a, any kind of lengthy introduction to Leviticus, and it is because this is the, the, the rule, the cultus, the specifications for the Levitical priesthood. But it's shared with all the people because the people will be, will be bringing the animals, and furthermore, this is the, especially in the, the first half of Leviticus, then uh, roughly, then, then what we're going to have is a uh, is a specification of what sacrifice is required for what sin or for what condition. Now, there's something else that's going to be very crucial. We're going to, fo we're going to follow a threefold pattern in Leviticus, and it, it's, it's good to notice it up front because there are going to be references to words that to us will have one meaning, and we have to rethink the meaning of these terms. The, the, the words are unclean, clean, and holy. We're going to see persons, we're going to see objects, uh, we're, we're going to see the words unclean, clean, and holy appear. Now, when we see th words like clean and unclean, and uh, even hear that language, and, and as a boy hearing this just from the biblical text, you know, clean and unclean, well, you know, as a, as a boy, I had a pretty good idea what clean and unclean was. Uh, that wasn't completely wrong. It, it's not completely wrong. Uh, you know, if, you, uh, if, if the kid's been out playing in the dirt, he comes in unclean. The mandate is get clean. And uh, that's uh, essential for civilization. That's essential for health. That's essential for mom. Okay, so clean and unclean. It's not wrong, it's just not right. It's not wrong because that's a picture. You see washing, and, and what a miracle it is that you can wash the dirt away. But clean and unclean in the Levitical context is theological. It's clean and unclean before God, and unclean means disqualified from participation in the sacrifice and in worship. You're disqualified. And it will be for some condition or on the basis of some act. So it's not, it's not physical defilement of, uh, of dirt, as in what we would say, you're not clean. Although there are physical conditions that are declared to be unclean, and especially those that involve 
fluids leaving the body, as, as we will see. But the larger issue is just the, the fact that this object or this worshiper is disqualified because of some, of some uncleanness. Clean means, not holy, not, not, not perfect, but clean means qualified for worship, qualified for participation in the life of Israel. Holy refers to God. And, uh, and those things that, that, that are God's. And so you could be clean but not holy. You cannot be holy and, not, and be unclean. So the word unclean is really important because that, that disqualifies. Clean is extremely important because it, it, it qualifies to participate, but it's not enough. In verse 3 we read, If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head, and the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasant aroma to the Lord. Let's just get ready. There's graphic material in this text from the very beginning. We are quite separated from the process of, uh, of butchering animals. We are quite separated from the process of the production of much of our food. It's not a particularly healthy alienation, although it is necessary for life as, as we live it. Um, I came to Louisville years ago, 40 plus years ago. There was an operating stockyard uh, right between uh, downtown and the seminary. That's why you have Stockyards Bank, and that's where you, you could go. Let me just tell you, you did not have to be told. Uh, no one had to tell you. You didn't hear, this, you didn't hear noise coming out of the, uh, out of the place, but uh, the stockyards were, there were stockyards. And this continued down the river all the way down. There was a sausage factory on River Road. You never had to be told what it was. You didn't want to go out right away and eat sausage either. It, it, it's, it's something that people living on a farm or engaged in the business, they, they know all the time. Mary and I uh, this uh, summer uh, got some sausage from some Amish folks, and it was really good. It was really good. Uh, it, it was really good, but it's hard to deal 
in this way. It was uh, the Amish place we got it, the stand, was uh, quite a ways from our house. And uh, you can't call them to find out if they have any sausage in stock. And uh, so, we, but we figured out where they got the sausage. And uh, it was a family farm in, uh, there in the area, Metcalf County, I think. And so we, uh, we, we found our way out there. And uh, when I say family farm, I mean family farm. The whole family was there. We went into where they sold the meat. And uh, there were three little girls packaging meat on a vacuum press. I mean, by little girls, I mean like six and eight and 12 using a vacuum press. Grandpa was uh, back uh, doing heavier things. And uh, it, was just, it was just wonderful. And you pass the animals coming in. And uh, the oldest of the little girls was very glad to take us out and show us the animals. And, you know, you look at this and you go, this is, this is tough. This is tough. These girls are tough. These girls are tough. They are right now vacuum packaging violet. And that's, that's tough. I don't think you could do it. Just looking at you. Don't think you got what it takes. I don't think I do either. It's, it's just, it's the closeness to this. And so here you have a burnt offering. And, and this is a major burnt offering because what we're going to see is the, the major offering of the, of the major animal, then the minor animal, then the, the flock. So it, it's, uh, it's from, the, it's from the, the, the herd. Um, and then it's, uh, it's from the flock. So you see what happens here. This is, uh, this is the major, so it's the major animal. Livestock from the herd or from the flock. This is a burnt offering. So Leviticus begins with a burnt offering. And how much of the animals to be burnt in a burnt offering? Everything but the skin. Everything but the skin. And the animal is brought in alive. And, and then it is basically butchered as part of the preparation for the sacrifice. And the specifications are such. Just remember, God requires scrupulous worship. He does not say, you guys just figure this out. Any kind of any way you want. You know, I just want to sacrifice, just kill the animal, figure out what to do with it. No, he tells them exactly what to do in a way that also has this, this triple structure of unclean and clean and, and holy is very much the background to everything. So even in the animal, there are parts that are unclean. Did you notice the parts of the animal have to be washed, the entrails and the legs? Now, why do the legs have to be washed? It is because, let's just say, we're going to talk about stuff you never expected to talk about in church. If you watch cattle process their food at the end, it gets on the legs. The legs must then be washed. The entrails must be washed. All of this will be burned, everything but the skin. But even on the even the animal itself, and, and we're here we're not talking about the most unclean, which is of course there's there's no swine here. So there are there are some offerings that would be so unclean as to be unthinkable. The, the cow or the ox can be made clean 
for the sacrifice. And again, all of this is a picture of us. This is, this is a picture of humanity. The animal, remember, is a substitute. So this is what happens with the substitute. Notice that the animal has to be pure. A male without blemish. Why male? The, uh, the primary thought of the use of the male in the in Israel's sacrificial system, is uh, there, there are several thoughts. One of them is power. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's a powerful animal. But the other is that uh, it's, it's generative, such that uh, the, 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 you're, you're, you're eliminating a male. Beyond a lot of this, we simply should not think, except for the fact that, of course, this does point to the incarnation of Christ, a man, and uh, we, we don't need to mythologize any of this or, or speculate, but there is undeniably, by God's sovereign decree, an indication of the fact this is to be the sacrifice of a male that is acceptable to him. But it's on behalf of all the people. In the beginning, it's a substitutionary sacrifice on behalf of all the people. It may have also to do with creation order, with Adam being created first and representative. And that is, that is also something in the flow of biblical history and in the sacrificial system and in atonement theology that must be recognized. Because remember, we have two federal heads. We have... Our first federal head is Adam, in whom we send. Our second federal head is Christ, in whom we are saved. The animal is to be brought in, and there is a certain practice, even as it is brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting. The one bringing the sacrifice lays his hand on the head of the burnt offering. It shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. This is probably accepted by the priests. In other words, the priests are to say, yes, this is an acceptable uh, sacrifice. You know, just look at the animal. This can't be an animal with a blemish. It can't be an animal that limps in. This has to be from the, the pride of the, of the flock or the pride of the herd in this case. Then, it shall, then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And I'll just notice this again. Notice the, the blood. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now, in Exodus, as we saw, going verse by verse and word by word, in Exodus, when the tent of meeting was described and the tabernacle was, uh, was, was described, you, you'll notice that even then with the altar, the horns of the altar and the, the vessels and everything around the altar, it was being prepared for the splashing of blood. So the blood sacrifice is not what you often see pictured in like uh, Sunday school pictures, which I saw when I was growing up as a little boy, which would be, you know, blood being poured vessel by vessel. There's some of that going on. But the bigger thing is, is that the blood is being displayed. The, the, the blood is being splashed on the altar. It's a, it's, 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 it's a sign of the horrible nature of sin and of the, of the costliness that comes of the forgiveness of sins. 
And even as we're just going to stop right here before we go any further, we, we have to deal with the why. It's, it's a question we simply have to confront. Why? What kind of God requires this? What, what, what is this bloody religion? The very first class I had in, in seminary opened my eyes to the problems the institution then faced. The very first class, the very first day of my first year, my first week at Southern Seminary as a student, I went into a New Testament class in the Gospel of Matthew. It was taught by Dr. Frank Stagg, who had taught at New Orleans Seminary and then came to Southern Seminary, I guess, in the early 1960s. He was kind of an institution in the Old Testament. I, uh, I knew his name. I knew he, he wrote books, went into his classroom. The very first day, he asked students to uh, answer three questions. Every student had to stand up and say our name, where we were from, and went to college, that, the undergraduate that was in that second part. And the third was, what is your favorite hymn? That's a good diagnostic set of questions. And uh, I, I was uh, somewhere in the middle, being an M. But uh, before the role was over, the name of a young woman came up. She was a, a missionary kid, and she was training to be a missionary. That's why she had come. And uh, so she stood up, and she gave her name, and she gave the place in which she came, which was overseas, parents and missionaries. And then the college to which she had gone. And then she said, my favorite hymn is, there is a fountain filled with blood. One of my favorites. Dr. Stagg arrogantly and meanly said to her, there will be no bloody cross religion in my class. There will be no bloody religion in my class. I don't believe in a God who can only forgive sin if there is the sacrifice of blood. Well, what that professor was effectively saying is there will be no Christianity in my class. There will be no biblical religion in my class. Now, what I knew in, in vague shape as a 20-year-old, and thus uh, later would become a consuming passion of my life theologically because of what I experienced myself, in the late 19th century, and uh, older than that, if you think of Socinianism and ancient... Very old heresy, let's just say. But if you, if you get to late 19th century, early 20th century Protestantism, you have the development of what in Germany is known as Kulturprotestantismus. It's, a, it's, it's cultural Protestantism. It's dressed-up Protestantism. It's courtly Protestantism. It's liberal Protestantism. It's beautiful church, put on a show, Protestantism. It's Protestantism at the center of the culture. You know what you don't have in European and that's where this really started, but European and American culture Protestantism, you don't have any blood. Everything's clean. Nothing's offensive. 
The God who is worshipped in cultural Protestantism is not the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, not the God of the prophets and the apostles, not the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sense that Christ is revealed in Scripture, and in the sense the entire Scripture points to Christ. No, this is a redefinition of, of, of the gospel and of the entire understanding of Christianity in this culturally acceptable, aesthetically enhanced, entirely whitewashed worship. And it's not just that there was a, a silence about blood atonement. There was an antipathy to blood atonement. Again, what struck me, and what I didn't premeditate even mentioning Dr. Stagg's name when I came this morning, but I just decided I'm going to say it. May help some of you in the room connect some dots someday. But it, it, it's not just a silence about this. Let's just kind of keep this between us and don't tell anybody this horribly bloody secret. It's antipathy. But behind that was the transformation of the doctrine of God. And, and the, the, the statement, there'll be no bloody cross religion, Dr. Stagg went on to say, he said, I don't believe in, that there had to be a killing on Calvary before God could forgive sin. In other words, he's saying, I don't believe in a God who's that sanctimonious, that demanding, that, I don't believe in a God who would actually require all of this. And so I, I decided, okay, we kind of lay in wait. We just introduced ourselves. We're going we're gonna to have the chance to press this question, and I'm going to have a chance to press Dr. Stagg on this question. And so obviously one of the questions that came to me was, Dr. Stagg, then, then what did they think they were doing? And, and, and so his answer to that was, and, and you guys, some of you are already on it. You know where he's going. He says, you have to separate the history of Israel from biblical history. In other words, Israel made this up. All right, so one whacked out people that would make this up. Ancient bloodthirsty people that would make this up. Crude desert people wearing animal skins that would make this up. And that's exactly what the German Protestant liberal scholars said the Old Testament was. It's nothing more than the tribal cultists of a crude people in an ancient time. They didn't know any better and they didn't have Mozart. When it comes to the New Testament, this is, by the way, a part of why in certain cultures, such as Germany, but throughout much of Europe, this approach of culture Protestantism amplified a certain form of anti-Semitism in the deadliest of ways. Because the argument is, why should that horribly backward tribal mess from the ancient Near East be brought into our beautiful churches? We need everything possible to separate ourselves. And so, why did Jesus die? Jesus merely dies as a victim of the Jews. That's the argument that was often made. They're Christ killers. Now, in biblical theology, there is responsibility given to Israel for the death of Christ. But the ultimate cause of the death of Christ is not Israel, but me and you and all of us. 
Blood atonement's a horrifying thing. I, I, we, we really can't, can't much think of it. One of the irritations of my life is hearing Baptists refer to an altar. We don't have one. We don't have an altar. That is not an altar. It should never be referred to as an altar. Uh, it, it, it got referred to as an altar with something like an altar call or lay your all on the altar as kind of a metaphor because there, are, there is an altar in the Roman Catholic Church. The Mass does require an altar because it is a repetitive sacrifice. It is, it, it is a crucifixion. And, you know, transubstantiation means that Christ is present in, that, in the Mass crucified again in violation of Scripture. This is why Luther would call it the bloody abhorrence of the Mass. And, and they call it the tabernacle. You'll recall that if you, if you, if you have observed the Mass or you know the Mass, that, that once the, the elements are claimed to have been transubstantiated, what, the, 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 they must be placed into this tabernacle, which is a vessel there on the altar to hold Christ. We don't have an altar. The Second Great Awakening language, heart language became associated with this and say, you know, that come this altar calls, an altar in the front. And it, and it wasn't meant like the Catholic altar, which in some of the sacramental churches in Protestantism, there's still an understanding of, of, of an altar, even without transubstantiation, without going into too much real presence implies an altar in a sacra sacramental system. And we're not sacramental in this sense. We have no sacramental theology. If you have a sacramental theology, if you have an altar. But in, in, in our tradition, this, this altar language got brought in largely by the Second Great Awakening. Sunday school songs, hymns, and, and all the rest. You know, the, an altar call, come to the altar, bring your all to the altar, your, your uh, sacrifice to the altar. That's not an altar. There's no blood on that. There's not going to be any blood on that. There, there is... Grape juice and bread, there's, there's no blood. It's because Christ sacrifices once for all. But in contrast to that, in the tabernacle, there's blood everywhere all the time. All the time. The God who requires this, as Hebrews will help to make clear, and as the Pentateuch, also the Torah, uh, makes explicit he's scrupulous about his worship he's scrupulous about his own righteousness about his own justice and our sin is the refutation of his righteousness just understand that human sin is the graphic ref refutation of his righteousness and he cannot be righteous and forgive sin without atonement atonement has to be made this again is why Last week we looked at Romans 3, 21 and following, and it is because he put forth Christ as a propitiation in his blood so that he would be revealed, that is the Father revealed, as both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Even in this sense, even in the Romans 3 sense, way out on the horizon, looking backwards, did you notice something that's implicit in this? This is, a, this is an animal that, uh, that, that a, a sinner in Israel brings for atonement, but where did he get the animal?
He's only given what he has received. Who owns the cattle? The cattle on a thousand hills belong to the Lord. This is, so even in the Old Testament, even in what we have just seen a few verses into Leviticus, who ultimately provides the sacrifice he demands? God does. This is not a game he's playing with his people. This is this constant, continuing, multiplied by the millions sacrificial system in which God says, I demand what I provide. Watch. Obey. Just as we finish this first paragraph about the sacrificial system, Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Throw the blood. Why? This is, this is, this is what God wants. God, God, God actually says, I want Aaron's sons, the priests. This would be sons through generation after generation, the Aaronic priesthood. To throw the blood at the altar at the entrance of the tent of meeting. What is going on here? It is so that those who enter the tent of meeting, you are entering. And remember the spectacular beauty, the embroidery, the, the curtains. Remember the glory of the vessels. Or just remember the beauty, the colors, the aquamarine, the turquoise, all these colors. And then the white, the white of the priesthood. All the way down to the details of... You know, what are the, be the, the, the trim on the priestly garments? But the, it's, it's, it's white, and they're throwing blood. It's so that you can't look anywhere without seeing blood. You can't enter without seeing blood. You can't leave without seeing blood. And then they are to burn the offering. The burnt offering is to be burnt entirely. And again, the clean and the unclean, uh, that is made very clear here. The entrails and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of that on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasant aroma to the Lord. And here we must end for this day, this week. A pleasant aroma to the Lord. Now, this too is an experience that you and I can share with Israel, at least in the olfactory sense. You know what it's like to catch a whiff of that smell. And every molecule of your being is drawn to follow that smell. There's a smoker, there's a grill. There's the smell of meat being cooked. This is not for for them. This is not for us. This is for God. God who has no body. God who needs nothing. He doesn't eat. He doesn't sleep. But this burnt sacrifice issues in clouds of smoke that rise to the heavens. And it's an aroma pleasing to God. What does that mean? That's the sacrificial language for God accepts the sacrifice. And just hold that because when we come back, 
Next time we're going to be looking at this text and we're going to follow, and we're just a few lines in the Leviticus, but we're going to follow what is pleasant unto the Lord, even aroma pleasant to the Lord. And then we're going to see elsewhere in Scripture where even bad preaching, we are told, stinks in God's nostrils. So as we come to the end of our consideration of Leviticus this morning, we will thank God for the privilege of studying His Word, and we'll be thankful that we're looking forward to Christian worship ordered by the Word of God, in which case God's Word will be preached, and we will pray that our worship and that sermon will be an aroma pleasing to God. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for all you've given us in this text. May all of it reside in our hearts in such a way that we are nourished further into faithfulness in Christ. For your glory we pray. Amen.